What can thousand-year-old trees teach us about living sustainably? If we want to be sustained by this planet indefinitely, we need to stop trying to suck it dry. Doug Larson is an award-winning scientist, author, and professor of biology at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. He is an expert on deforestation and regularly contributes to environmentalist work in The Guardian and other publications. His books include Cliff Ecology, The Urban Cliff Revolution, New Findings on the Origins and Evolution of Human Habitats, Storyteller Guitar, and The Dogma Ate My Homework. Doug Larson, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thanks, Mia. I've been so fascinated to learn about your body of work, but your most recent book that you authored with your son, The Dogma Ate My Homework, I believe you're going to share a passage with the listeners before we dive in. Yes. Well, I'm just going to quote briefly from the beginning of the book because it sets the tone for what we try to cover in the rest of the volume. So it starts off, maps. We love maps. The older, the better. The wronger, the better. Not because the maps were trying to deceive us. Quite the contrary. Early maps were trying to use the best science available to show a model of the world as it was thought to exist. New and improved map of the world was a common title. We know that the beautiful map below, and there's an image of the map in the book, is wrong, but it was not published as dogma. It was published as science. Even maps published today are not perfect, and each tries to make a clearer, more hopeful representation of the world. So it is with this book. Yes, indeed. We often forget. I mean, I just came out of a conversation yesterday with uh, Rupert uh, Sheldrake and uh, the the concept of dogmas is one that's ever present on his mind as well. And we often forget that there's a lot of dogma in science as well and that scientists are storytellers. Yes, indeed. But there is as much variation in the quality of science as there is in the quality of art. Jacob Bernowski pointed this out in many of his writings, that art and science are really both trying to achieve the same goal, get a sense of the truth. But sometimes when somebody is filled with their own self-confidence, they'll claim they have a vision of the truth that they're not themselves willing to question. This applies as much to scientists as it does to artists. But a good scientist, and Jacob Bernowski points this out in most of his publications, a good scientist will always be happy to be shown where they've made a mistake or where their assumptions were not thoroughly investigated. So a good scientist will always try to hunt for dogma first in themselves. I'm the first one to admit that there's things that I'm dogmatic about. One of them is that dogma should be destroyed. And I'm dogmatic about that. There's nothing I could do about that. I can't stand it when I hear anyone, including myself, being dogmatic. Yes. Perhaps go into the different perspectives on those different uh, brands of dogmatism. I love talking about this because I realize in retrospect, there's a whole chapter in the book that I didn't quite write. When Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press in the 14th, religious scholars and politicians around the world were terrified because suddenly people could see identical copies of a particular publication and test the ideas that were being offered. When everything written was a manuscript, each author, scribe, could make that volume say whatever they wanted, and so there was no such thing as standardization. Science can only grow when different people are reading the same thing and are permitted to come to different conclusions about that same identical thing that they're reading. But critical thinking requires is that different people examine the same set of ideas in different locations and then 
discuss them having seen the same thing when what they're discussing is different in every location because all of the texts have been manuscript-based. There's no capacity for critical thinking. So when the Gutenberg Press was applied to scientific questions, there was a tremendous opportunity for critical thinking to grow. And the growth of science as we understand it today happened largely because of the printing press. Since social media and the internet have become um, a standard means of communication around the world, it's almost as if we have gone back to the pre-printing press times. The proliferation of non-peer-reviewed, non-critically evaluated information is everywhere through social media. And what that means is that all of the advantages that were provided by the invention and execution of the printing press have been slowly eroding because of the proliferation of essentially non-peer-reviewed material all through the popular press. So in science, you have to have these agreed upon truths. And I've just been thinking about the origins of science or scientific inquiry. There were a lot of religious people initially involved in science, and now there has been this one truth kind of different perspectives on one truth. But there's certain scientific principles that this is just ever present in my mind because I just came out of conversation with Rupert Sheldrake, that the rules of nature and physics are fixed and these kind of things. Do you ascribe to all those scientific truths? Every time I I hear the word truth in science, I open up my head and say, well, every scientific truth is a possibility. But Bronowski is the first one to say, whenever anyone asserts knowledge with certainty, not only are they eroding their own credibility as a scientist because they're establishing dogma, but they're also going down a very dangerous path. Bronowski points out that fascism in Germany following Hitler's rise to power was essentially based on people not being allowed to say out loud how do you know that? You know, when the Jews were claimed to be part of humanity that should be eliminated, there weren't enough people saying, how do you know that? Like, on what basis do you say that? So you're measuring the skulls and you're measuring noses and you're measuring this. So what's the evidence, Mr. Scientist? What's the evidence that has anything to do with anything? If they had been able to use critical thinking through the 1930s in Germany, fascism and Nazism wouldn't have risen. Yeah, exactly. How do you know that? And the real challenge is, of course, opening up these discussions to many voices, while at the same time being narrow enough that you can have like a strong vision. Right. I'm not saying that scientists or artists, for that matter, shouldn't vigorously pursue their dreams. I mean, this is what I love about this mixture of art and science that I've tried to put into my career. As a guitar maker, I kept on doing experiments after experiments in the basement. The first instrument I built, I took it to a friend of mine who actually has a guitar making business. And he looked at it and he said, well, Doug, this instrument has the approximate shape of a guitar, but it's not a guitar. It's a piece of junk. And he was right. So what I found is it's thrilling as an artist or as a scientist to pursue something, even if you don't actually achieve the thing that you're pursuing. It's the attempt that expresses the humanity. Yes, indeed. And I know with your involvement with old growth forests, I'm thinking of the author that we had on our show, Rick Bass. Do you know his work? He's done this restoration project where he took a piece of a tree from an old growth forest to be made into a guitar that would be a symbol for regeneration and reforestation. And, and so it produces a special sound and they did a concert about it. But I was just wondering, to go into a little bit about your music making process, because you've also written about this. Yeah, well, it goes back to what Bronowski has talked about, the unity of art and science. Whenever a scientist or an artist or a musician or a guitar maker tries to make something, they're exploring what is possible. And one of the dogmas that I have been confronting as a guitar maker 
is the ascendancy of, for example, Brazilian rosewood. Brazilian rosewood has for 150 years or so been argued to be the most wonderful wood for making the backs and sides of acoustic guitar. And I, as a scientist, know that to be able to assert that that piece of dogma to be true, you would have to make 20 identical guitars, half of which would be made out of Brazilian rosewood. The other half would be made out of some supposedly inferior quality wood. Who can afford to do that? If it takes 150 hours to make an acoustic guitar, what kind of person can stay in business as a guitar maker, making 10 of one type, 10 of another type, otherwise identical, only to do an experiment? And so the, the result in this, if you look at it, there's only a tiny, tiny literature on the physics of acoustic guitars because the experiments are really expensive or unlikely to have been done. So what I decided to do in my own basement was to do those sorts of experiments myself. So I made a series of six instruments, one of which included Brazilian rosewood, another species called black cherry, another species called sugar maple. When they were all done, they were all the same sounds, and I myself couldn't tell the difference. Now, one of these dogma-toting, Brazilian rosewood-loving guitar makers might have said, well, you did such a bad job in building the guitar that has concealed the difference that the Brazilian rosewood would have as opposed to these other species. And I would say, well, I have ears, and my audience, when I do shows, have got ears, and they can't hear the difference. So it's possible that the difference that Brazilian rosewood guitar makers citing as being important is so trivial that it's not worth cutting down the Brazilian rosewood that's left in the world. And it's part of this, I think that musicians can, there's this kind of language of vibration and frequencies and sounds into the world, which can approximate the kind of communication that we see in the, the forest, the ancient forests. Yeah. For example, one of the things I found in studying the ancient cedars of the Vinegar Skirmish is wood that is growing slowly for a thousand years has an entirely different physical property from the wood of the same species that's been growing quickly for 60 years. Now, none of those trees gets big enough to make an instrument out of. I wouldn't do that anyway, because I'd rather have the trees live on the escarpments. But I've done some experiments on the strengths and flexibility between old wood and slow-growing wood from an ancient tree, as opposed to the fast-grown wood from a tree in someone's yard. And they're vastly different characteristics. So I'm sure that the whole sound of the forest is different because of the different properties of the trees. Yes. And it goes back to some of these ideas like the, the mother tree how they can protect other trees at a distance. Yeah, there's a growing literature on activity through mycorrhizal association. And of course, this leads to great discussions about what is an individual. If you've got something like tulip poplar and it grows underground, root connections to other trees, it begs the question, when you're pointing at a tree, is that all of it? Or is the rest of the forest all connected through these various connections to the one that you're pointing at? Yes, we're only just coming now to understand how important both those ancient forests are, but of course the mycorrhizal networks and the soil, which we thought with our industrial agriculture that we could just kind of kill the soil and it would be more efficient. And that's a whole other subject on regenerative farming. And the wonder, the 8 billion organisms that are in a handful of soil, more than all the humans on the planet. 
Well, it's funny you should mention this. I've just finished a book called Dinner on Mars, written by another colleague at the University of Guelph. And one of the points that's raised in this book is that the most important thing, if there's ever going to be any survival of people on the planet Mars, it must be by growing food ourselves on the surface of Mars. And the fundamental requirement is to have soil that the plants grow in, because if you don't have the right connections amongst the microorganisms in the soil, the plants won't grow properly, and there'll be mass starvation and no one will survive. So understanding how soil works, just like you've been talking about, is an essential requirement before anybody starts talking about moving people to Mars and growing the food there. We could take the same money and perhaps some of the same techniques and use it to fix problems for the seven and a half, eight billion people here now, uh, rather than worrying about trying to colonize basically a rock in space. Indeed. And it's that intellectual humility and just curiosity and wonder about the natural world that you've said that you found the ancient forest to be your greatest teacher. We have to think, I think, in that perspective that we are small among the vastness. Well, I think growing slowly and patiently and with fewer demands on the environment in which you live is just as healthy and perhaps more healthy than the endless hunger for more and more and more, which we see as a characteristic of our species. So tell us a little bit about those discoveries you've made of old growth forests, uh, even just quite close to highways. It's funny, it's connected directly with this discussion of dogma. I had a 17-year-old summer student working with me. His name was Keddy Nash. And we were going to do a project looking at the effect of human disturbance on the forests along the edge of this escarpment in southern Ontario called the Niagara Escarpment. We held the view that other people had. We had this dogmatic view that European settlement had essentially destroyed all of the original forest cover in southern Ontario. We thought that was true, and nobody that we spoke to said that there was any evidence to the contrary. So we started looking at the structure of these forests. And one of the things we wanted to do was to figure out how quickly they were growing. The possibility was in the presence of human disturbance, the trees might be growing more quickly because there's no competition from other plants on the ground. In order to figure out if they're growing more quickly or not, you have to calculate the total mass of the tree by measuring its diameter, measuring its height, and running through some calculations. And dividing that by its age, and that tells you how many grams it grows every year for its lifespan. And when we started to core samples from the trees along the edges of the cliffs, we couldn't see any rings at all. So I sent off some samples to a friend of mine at the Lamont Doherty Earth Institute in New York. He said, indeed, those are ancient trees. You didn't know they were there, and you probably suffered from the illusion that Europeans had killed everything off, and they didn't. These trees have survived human encroachment on their environment because the trees themselves were twisted and deformed and otherwise unusable. So their slow growth and their inability to be used commercially by anybody for anything meant that they survived us. And since then, we discovered trees that are as old as, well, the oldest tree we found started to grow in the year 663. That's amazing. They're non-regular formations. It reminds me about the survival of so many tuskless elephants now in Africa. You don't know whether it's a stage of evolution because they want to avoid poaching. Evolution is a wonderful process and you know, life finds a way to persist in the presence of disturbance like people with guns. So, and alongside that, you've also always been drawn to cliffs. That's a subject that's often been ignored. Yeah. 
I was a graduate student. I did my work along the edge of Hudson Bay in the southern portion of the Arctic tundra in Ontario. Everything that grows in the tundra is stunted and deformed because it's, from a human point of view, a very harsh environment. If you could interview the lichens and the bosses and the little tiny trees and the tundra, and you ask them if it was horrible, they would say, no, it's a paradise. Nobody bothers us. We, we don't need to grow quickly to be happy. And most of the Arctic plants that grow along the coast of Hudson Bay are in their own little paradise. Everything there was deformed and stunted, and I, I didn't know that they were old. I just assumed that, as I mentioned before, that everything had been wiped out by European ancestors. But the forest had taught me that you have to open up your mind to see different ways of living to understand what this thing is that you're looking at. So again, this is where I had to fight. My initial dogmatic thinking was that people had ruined everything. And we discovered that people had not ruined everything. And I don't know what your, if you have a spiritual practice, what are your beliefs? Well, I have no religious affiliation, but I feel a close connection to the planet. It brought me here. And after I die, I will go back to it. So I feel that the entire planet is a living being with 20 million species that are its components. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to think about existence in that way, because it opens up the possibility of you just becoming part of the universe. I tell my grandchildren all the time, and they, they don't actually believe me when I'm telling them this, you are made of stardust, that everything that's on this planet was the result of a supernova explosion that took place billions of years ago, generated all the heavy elements, all the lighter elements, and everything that eventually coalesced to become the planet Earth. And I've even told her that most of the biomass that is in each of us was once in other biomass in the form of dinosaurs and metasequoia trees through the Carboniferous period. And so the Earth has been endlessly recycling all of the things that are within it. And that forms as much a spiritual base for me as any sort of concept of a deity that's been in charge of the system. Yeah, and there's this kind of perhaps a resonance or one gets one's ideas in proximity to others or those who have gone in the past. I mean, do you wonder where your ideas come from? Well, it's funny you should ask that question. I was watching uh, talk about uh, Tommy Nomi talking this morning with some musicians and Brian May from Queen. And Brian May asked him, where did you get that song from? And the answer was, I don't know. I just thought it up. And there it was. I think both in the arts and the sciences, sometimes the questions you ask, you don't know where they came from, and you can't even teach somebody else how to open up their heads to conceive of questions of their own. These things, whether you're a songwriter or a graphic artist or a sculptor, sometimes as you're walking along or you're just relaxed, you have a thought and you say, I'm going to pursue that. And the motivation behind that pursuit, you can't understand. It's just there. I mean... Neil Young was once asked, so what's your lesson to other songwriters? And what he says is, write, go ahead and do it. And if something comes out, it does. And if nothing comes out, then you're not a songwriter. But you can't ask me for lessons on how to write a song, how to write this, how to write that. Indeed, it comes out of a whole life and the, the lives that you touch or touched you throughout. And in your own music, what does that provide uh, as a counterpoint to your scientific work? It's the other side of the mirror. I think that I think like a scientist, 
But I'm also aware that in that thinking, I've got bias and wishes and colors and flavors. My own interest in these poor stunted trees on the escarpment probably goes back to my upbringing. I had a difficult childhood with a father who insisted that he was right about everything all the time. And I'm sure that in the work that I did in my early years as a scientist, I was trying to find some system that would not argue back to me the way I had experienced as a child. I loved working with organisms that were themselves repressed by nature. And that's why I loved working on the tundra. It's a wonderful thing to stand like Gulliver on top of an entire ecosystem that's only three inches tall. And you sort of ask yourself, am I any happier than it? And I wasn't. And I found that tremendously thrilling to have a different perspective that I know that if I followed my father's directives, I never would have been allowed to have. Yeah, it's incredibly um, humbling. Do you think about consciousness in the plant world that you do? Would you think about it in the tundra or other still life forms? Uh, absolutely. There's a whole chapter in the book, in the dogma book, and it's called Hope for Humans. Chapter is based on the work of Harold Morowitz. He's a thermodynamic physicist of great renown. And the point about consciousness, if you if you examine it from a psychological evolutionary point of view, is that it provides the ultimate capacity in our species to avoid all kinds of pressures, threats, and other things that impinge on our ability to succeed. Evolution as a force in nature is inevitable. It's not something magical, nothing short of inevitable. Things that can persist in environmental fluctuations will. And consciousness in our species provided in the whole history of the evolution of life on Earth, consciousness provided us with the capacity to, as Richard Dawkins says, almost instantly change our minds through the use of memes when we see a better way of doing anything. So the process of biological evolution in our species might have stopped, but the process of mimetic evolution continues. And consciousness is the basis of that nomadic evolution. The fact is, you and I might start off talking about something. You might have a view about something that I disagree with. And you and I might then discuss it. And if I suddenly see that your view on the topic is better than mine, instantly my ecology, my behavior, what I do can be changed by me absorbing your view. It didn't require new genes. It simply required new thinking. And that's what consciousness provides, the capacity for us to be infinitely capable of surviving whatever we do to ourselves. Greta Thunberg and others are arguing that we humans are killing the planet. You've heard that over and over again. There's a chapter in the book that says, we can't, the planet cannot be destroyed. The planet as we like it might be changed. But if we're arrogant enough to think that we can destroy this fabulous planet that we've only been on for maybe five or six million years, other organisms have been on it for three or 400 million years. If we're arrogant enough to think that we can destroy it, then we need to go to school because the truth is we might be destroying the planet that we like. We might be getting rid of your favorite species. We might be destroying some habitats in your coastlines, but we as a species are capable of learning. Ultimately, when we're threatened by a force which is negative, including the forces that we impose on ourselves, we change. It takes a long time sometimes for that change to be evident. I mean, right now in Gaza, for example, you've got tremendous pressures on all sides, but something will be resolved. It will eventually, because hope does in fact run eternal, but it comes from the capacity of people to think critically about what they're saying and doing 
And that, in our view, is the whole basis of hope. That's why the subtitle of the book is Science Minus Dogma Equals Hope. And hope is at the core of consciousness. Yes. And it, sometimes we do. We are at this moment where a lot of people do have uh, despair, um, eco-anxiety. I think that the real point behind that is maybe not that we'll destroy the planet, except, of course, I guess it's because yeah. we do happen to think about our own species, the future of human life on this planet. We do have to hold on to that hope. And one of those hopes or the technologists are looking, you're talking about evolution, you're talking about what the future holds. And now we've just seen with the advent and the real uh, implementation of AI, which is reaching all sectors of society, where some put forth that this silicon, this is a little bit outside of your <laughs> specialization, but that this silicon is a new life form, a new step in our evolution. It might be, but those of us who are not ourselves computers, I assume that I'm talking to a real person right now, and you assume that you're talking to me, even if I were a, a bot, if the bot would come up with an idea that I, as a human, hadn't come up with, and you, as a listener to the bot, can see the logic, the improved logic, from that AI version of Doug Larson, then all that's happened is that you have benefited yourself from a product of the evolution of thinking that other humans had who made me the bot. So ultimately, it doesn't matter whether we use AI to improve our existence on this planet or we just do it through our own biology. It's all part of humanity. It's all part of what we are creating with our consciousness. So I'm not against AI at all. Now, I must admit, if I were teaching first-year biology and I was asking students to write an essay, how do I know that they wrote it as opposed to using I to, to write it? I don't know. Maybe I'd stop assigning essays. Yeah, I think that having the oral examination might be something that we would return to. But of course, and this is quite off topic, but there, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, it's robotics. And so teachers can be replaced and be fed with all the books in the world. And so it's something that we have to think about just in terms of our role in this world. Like we talked about at the beginning of their discussions, the loss of the capacity for critical thinking because people are communicating in a non-peer-reviewed form, right? And social media is like going back to manuscript books. And sometimes you can't even find the website that gave you initial information. So as long as that's the situation, that it becomes impossible to know for sure if AI generates an essay on, say, capitalism, if a person in the class where the kid is writing that essay using AI, if another kid puts in a different keyword in the request for the AI version of that article on capitalism, that's not going to be the same article. So again, there's no capacity for those AI-produced documents to be identical. Yes. And so in terms of honing your own critical thinking, what teachers were important to you? Oh, my God. I guess my grade seven and grade eight science teacher was the first one, because I grew up in an environment where my father had a low opinion of me. My grade seven and eight science teacher said, he thought I was pretty good at stuff like that. I was good at dissecting critters. I was good at collecting rocks and plants and stuff. And then my grade 10 science teacher said, well, we had a project that involved the dissection of a pickled cat. And he said that the work that I did on that project was better than he'd seen in any student in grade 10 in his 20 years of teaching. That happened at the same time that the shop teacher who taught industrial arts, said that I was about the best mechanic he'd seen in about 20 years. So suddenly I thought, geez, these teachers are all telling me things that my father never said. These teachers were telling me that I was good at making things. 
that I loved making things, that I loved opening things up, seeing how things worked. I remember my father in 1967, his first color TV, and I took it apart to see how it worked. It didn't work when I put it back together. He was very unhappy. But I loved, I still love, when someone when breaks a machine, I always ask him if I can have it so I can take it apart and see what broke. That's actually what made my parents think that I was going to be a doctor. Those teachers were very important in giving me a sense of competence in different fields. I didn't know that I was any good mechanically. I think teachers generally in the younger years can play a crucial role in establishing a sense of self-worth in a student. Grandkids, as I've tried to empower them, we've got microscopes downstairs and I still go on hikes with them when I try to show them what I've learned about how the world works by letting them actually see it in their hands or with their own eyes. And what for you is the importance of telling stories in the environmental humanities? A friend of mine is the author, Thomas King, and he's written a book called The Truth About Stories. And what's amazing, and you're involved with this professionally, this is what you do. All we are is stories, period. We are nothing but stories. The things we do, we then tell people about. And as you think of your grandchildren and what a different experience you had growing up when you had to make your own entertainment, but now everything is presented. You don't have to think. You don't have to make that effort. And it, it really is important to find your own way. I went for a hike through this forest that's right near our house with my grandson, Jimmy. And what seemed like a stick landed on my hat. And Jimmy said, Papa, the stick is moving. And I took my hat off. And it was a, a kind of caterpillar that takes on the form of a twig. So it's a twig camouflaging caterpillar for this species of moth. And Jimmy got to experience this piece of evolutionary functionality himself outside with the cold and the wind and the stick bug on my hat. And to this day, he talks about that trip. So when you go on these hikes with your grandchildren or your children, you don't know what you're going to do. It's going to be memorable to them. But you have to get out there, get them to bump into these experiences. I mean, we know that stick insect, we just bumped into it. We didn't know it was going to be there. But it led to a big discussion and a fascination on his part about how the evolution of life on this planet has worked. I don't think you can get that from YouTube. No, you can't. There is this feeling that all of life can maybe be downloaded or recorded into these large language models, but there is much more to life than that. I know. And unfortunately, unless people are given the tools to challenge what they hear on social media, they will unfortunately start to accept the idea that all this stuff can be downloaded. There has to be pushback, in my humble view, by people who value critical thinking rather than simple consumption. I think social media has led to a vast amount of information being absorbed by people without them being encouraged to say, like we talked about at the beginning of the whole discussion we had today, how do you know that? That's the most critically important question to be asked of politicians, governments, bankers, teachers. How do you know that? I have another grandson, his name was Angus. This goes back to last year when the dog book came out. The local newspaper wanted to run a story about it. But because I'm the photographer of the family, I didn't have any photographs of me that had been taken by other people. So the photo editor of the newspaper said, can you get together with your son and have somebody take a picture of the two of you so that we can use that in the story about the book? So we went into Toronto and Angus saw the photographer take these pictures of us. And then Angus said, Papa, why did they want to take a picture of you? Because the book covers a topic that people aren't willing to discuss very much. And that is the proliferation of dogma 
in our society right now. And Angus said, well, what's dogma? So I said, Angus, he was in grade four at the time. Ever happened in school that your friends or your teachers or somebody says something to you that they claim is true, but they don't tell you how they know that? He says, yes, it happens all the time. Teachers give me a homework assignment and there's a certain answer that is the right answer and all the other answers are wrong. And you have to put down the right answer for your homework to be considered okay. And I said, well, Angus, the next time you go to school and the teacher or somebody else makes a claim, put your hand up and say, teacher, how do you know that? Well, he got in trouble and he learned that people who make assertions about certain things being true don't want to be stopped. They don't want to be challenged because our society has forgotten the joy that comes from finding out the real truth of things, which can only be revealed by critical thinking and the use of a scientific mind. So poor Agus, he got in trouble and he's learned that you can't always ask the teacher, how do you know that? Thank you for having me, Doug. I am a huge fan of your work. So I wanted to begin talking about Storytell Guitar, where... You piece together the histories of the people and the places that create it. So what's your personal story and relationship to the environment and how might that connect with other stories? I love that question because it's so close to what drives me. Saying before, I was raised in a family where if I expressed my views, I, I would not be rewarded. So I always felt like the underdog, like I had to get away from people who were always going to tell me that I was wrong. And the only place that I found solace was in bugs, plants, trees, non-human things. I felt great sympathy for critters and even other people who were being abused or contained by forces that were not theirs to fight against. And that's a tremendous liberating thing because most of the world is not people. You know, there's 20 million odd species alive and there's one species of homo sapiens. So there's lots of other ways to be happy without having to focus on the immediate people controlling yours. And that was really liberating to actually get paid to do that. Yeah, that is so liberating. Even for myself, your personal story connects to my own connection with nature and background. I grew up with a military father. Yeah, so okay. I definitely know what you mean. And it's interesting because... My views, I could not express that in my own household. It's hard, isn't it? It's yes. Hard. But, you know, it's funny because we still connect through nature. I grew up always going on road trips with my dad to the Redwood Forest. And through that, we still have this connection. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear the similarity of our experiences. My father was also in the army during the war. I think one of the things that made him dogmatic is because of his eyes, he couldn't actually go overseas. He was in an office somewhere. But those forests you're talking about are OS, the microscopic majesty of the trees that I study on the, the little tiny trees that are ancient, the grandeur at the small scale that I feel on those cliff trees is mirror imaged in the mass of beautiful coast redwoods that you must know about. It's like two opposite ends of scale telling the same thing. This planet is a wonderful thing. When we first found the ancient trees on Muscarne, I wrote to people all around the world that had planned a sabbatical trip to ask the question, will cliffs around the world also have ancient trees in like Muscarne, but that nobody has known about? So in, in the midst of all this planning, I wrote to someone who works in the south of France. Jean-Paul Mandel was his name. And I said, they'd like to come to the south of France. 
and look at your land rocks to see if perhaps you've got old trees on your cliffs, just like we've got in our cliffs. And we found the oldest living trees in France. Le Figaro did an article about this, and about a year later, I mean, John Paul Mandel was extremely happy to discover that he was wrong. This is a very non-dogmatic person. So I loved him for his willingness to accept that we had discovered something about France that no one seemed to know about. A year later, he sent me a cross-section of a tree that had been cut down by rock climbers, and the tree started to grow in the year 512. And from the French point of view, that was wonderful because that tree saw the last of the Roman leaf. If you're a Frenchman colonized temporarily by the Romans, you would like to know that something's still alive up until the climbers cut it down. Saw the Romans get their butts kicked. And so that's one of the things that made it sort of a big story in the Figaro. Since then, they've found ancient trees all over the cliffs in the south of France and elsewhere, throughout Germany and Spain, Jordan. And it turns out to be a very common. If you want to find the oldest trees in any country, look for the cliffs. I get the chills still when I think about these trees having been the first witnesses of the arrival of humans. That's the definition of cool. My name is Courtney Gowiran, and I am an associate podcaster with The Creative Process. I study environmental literature at the University of California, Los Angeles, so talking with Doug Larson has affected me deeply. As Doug has mentioned, everything around us holds the history of all the people and places that brought it here. From Earth's trees to oceans that give us life, nature shows us how to care for one another. In a world driven by overconsumption, it is sometimes easy to forget that we only have one planet to call our home and we must do our best to honor it, no matter what political beliefs, background, gender, socioeconomic status, or unique story. A relationship with nature can connect us to our human existence and responsibility to preserve the planet we call home. I grew up along the coast of California, surrounded by rolling hills and forestry, so I've always felt grounded and dependent upon nature. I wonder, is our connection to the earth a reflection of our longing to have a deeper connection with ourselves, or does it depend on where we grow up and the cultural life forces that shape our lives? Another one of my takeaways from Doug's work is that we all have our own unique experiences, stories, and upbringings. From the communities we grew up in and the people in our environment, it is more crucial than ever to shed light upon the diverse experiences that are indispensably eye-opening. As Doug Larson explains in Storyteller Guitar and The Dogma Ate My Homework, Nature is inseparable from the connection we have with ourselves. In a world where deforestation destroys the natural habitats of various species and human existence, we must begin connecting our personal stories to a larger purpose of saving the planet. Doug Larson's work and efforts to affect change for future generations is a testament to the ability every individual has to become an advocate for the environment. As a One Planet podcaster, it is incredibly liberating and empowering to know that I can use my own personal experiences and voice to influence our generation in fighting against climate change. Now, back to the interview. Yes, and we say see, but it makes you think about what perspective, what is that sense of vision? We think of vision, but is it a kind of blind sense or just through the photosynthesis? Is it something else through the leaves, the mycorrhizal networks? I can't imagine what that perception of the world would be? Well, because we're people, we can't. But this is what the wonderful thing is about having a career in art or science. You can imagine it. You can draw it. You can sing about it. You can think about it. You could write poetry about it. You can carve it into stone. You can make the trees speak through their voices with the hands 
and the brain you have attached to those hands. You can form an object or an item in such a way that people can appreciate what the tree would see if it had eyes. As you think about the future and education, of course, the importance of critical thinking, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I would love them all just to be empowered to say out loud to themselves, to their siblings, to their parents, and to their teachers, how do you know that? That's the beginning. How do you know that? If we could teach us all, if we could teach broadcasters, if we could teach interviewers, if we could teach politicians to be ready for the question, how do you know that? And in your own educational journey, what ideas of yours have been fixed since the beginning or what have developed over time? That there is no reason for doom and gloom in our species. That evolution has produced the most amazing organism that is capable of almost instantaneous change for the better. And I didn't know that when I was a kid, but I think I sensed it. I think I sensed that all these other 20 million species knew something we didn't know. And that was, there's always hope if you let it out of the bag. We're always willing to say that we're right to other people. But the joy comes from realizing that the truth eventually comes out. And it's by the inexorable floating of science to the surface by people who say they're wrong. They think it's a sign of weakness. And in my view, it's the ultimate sign of strength in a politician to say, yeah, I was wrong last week. I was wrong last month. I was wrong last year. Yeah, we're always looking for better ideas. And so if you've got one, let us know. Politicians think it's a sign of weakness to change their minds. And I think, are you kidding? Evolution is selecting for people to change their minds all the time. That's what works in nature. Evolution is the process by which things which are better replace things which aren't. Changing your mind requires that. Yes, change, I would say, is one of the, the only constant truths, if you might say it that way. So thank you, Doug Larson, for all you've done to help us understand the dangers of dogma, the beauty of forests and cliffs and plant communication, and how we are all connected. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. My pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Mashowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Courtney Guiran, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Courtney Guiran. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.